It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, our mission to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about flood insurance and why you may want to get it even if you aren't in a floodplain. Also, you may have heard of fast fashion, but have you heard of fast furniture? So we have a home that is not in a floodplain, but we have flood insurance. And so you may think I'm out of my mind. But the deal is we live by two minor creeks. They come together on our property and they continue enduring heavy rains which can occur in the spring, the creek can start to look like a pretty menacing thing. Thank goodness in more than 10 years living where we do, we've had not even close to a flood in our house. and we had anything, it would just hit our basement. But because we're not in a floodplain and our risk is so exceedingly low, the premium is extremely low just a few hundred dollars a year. And now our premiums after a reset coming later this year are almost certainly going down for our flood insurance because our risk profile is extremely low. But the coverage I get is up to $250,000. In reality, for if any damage only occurred to our basement, then the coverage is essentially 25000 But again, the premium is so low that in the extremely unlikely event that it would happen, it would still be worth it. Krista, we haven't talked in years about what happened to you that was such a devastating personal and financial experience when your home suffered a major flood in 2009. Yeah, good times. <laughs> and in your area, 10,000 homes were heavily damaged or destroyed by those floods and you were in a situation with your home where you were in a floodplain but you had a relatively minor creek behind your home and if i remember right correct me where i'm wrong there were 22 inches of rain in 15 hours is that yeah and then the sewer backed up into the creek which was really another bonus (laughs) and your house became it looked like a literally it looked like a houseboat and I remember you and your husband, Mike, were on your 10th anniversary trip. We were. Came back, landed, and I'm with you at the curb looking at your house as tears are rolling down your face, and you see water just going through your home. And that was a brutal experience. The power of water is amazing. But I'll say I'm glad that happened to us, ultimately for me personally, only because I found how lucky I was. And I had people like you and other people in my life who were so good to us. And we didn't know what the finances were going to be like after, but we were we were totally fine. And um, thank goodness had the means to get back in and um, and take care of things. And then what it did for me was, you know, when you have a flood, they take all the stuff out and it gets thrown into dumpsters and everything. They have to tear it apart if you have the kind of damage we had. And just seeing all that material stuff, um, it didn't mean anything to me. There were just a couple of sentimental things that mattered. And so it's really changed my perspective in a positive way. Well, that's why you're you, that you looked at what was a brutal experience at that time where you were having trouble even sleeping. And 
you now look at it as a positive event. Most people don't look at a flood as a positive life event. And there are, because of development patterns in urban and suburban areas, as we so overwhelmingly urbanize all across um, the major metros of the country, we lose a lot of vegetation in a lot of areas, a lot of tree cover that increases the flooding risk. Then you layer on top of that the issues from climate change. And so we are seeing increasing flooding activity. And that's why a lot of homes that that may be in a position where, yeah, they're not in a floodplain, but there's a good possibility that your home could see an invasion of water, even though it's not on the flood maps. This would be something you should look at and see what kind of premium you'd face at floodsmart.gov. Now, that's number one. Number two is USA Today did an in-depth write-up on the changes coming to the National Flood Insurance Program. And as part of those changes, people that are in extremely high-risk categories are going to see their premiums just go bananas for flood insurance, way, way, way up, as the feds try to realign the risk level of an individual property with what the cost is to the taxpayers who subsidize the National Flood Insurance Program. So one thing about the change is that if you are an existing homeowner and your flood insurance premium goes up 3,000%, you're not going to pay that 3,000% increase. The maximum your premium can go up in a year, allegedly, apparently, is 18%. So you would see an increase. You'd have to expect that 18% increase every year. However, at the time you sell your home, the buyer would absorb the full new market price for that coverage. So if the premium's gone up 3,000%, even though you didn't face it, the buyer of your property would. What you should know is someone buying a property that is in a high-risk flood zone you have to prepare for potentially paying extremely high flood insurance premiums. And these things that are coming along sometimes get delayed in the political process, but it's going to happen. And under our show notes for today, we'll have the full write-up of this story. And in there is a link where you can look up based on zip code, the risk levels, where you are, you're able to see how much this would be a concern, particularly if you're moving from one metro area to another and you're not really tuned into this. Maybe you're in an area that's not subject to flooding. You'll be able to see the risks involved. All right. Clark Ken in Minnesota says, I want to buy the condo that I'm renting. There are 11 rentals out of 24 One other unit is for sale, and the HOA forced someone out and bought the unit at auction. Is this a red flag to someone who isn't emotional about the issue? When you're in a position where a small condo development, you know, 24 units, you've got roughly half of them that are rentals, 
that is a big, big red flag and makes it difficult for the condominium community to turn around. Because at that level of non-owner occupied units, getting uh, traditional conventional financing in a condo becomes very, very hard. And I would like you, uh, I know you probably love where you're living as a renter. I'd like for you to go out and look at what else is available nearby and particularly protect yourself by looking in condominiums that have tight collars, tight caps on whether or not rentals are allowed. I used to own a condo that the community had 116 units, and it had reached a point where uh, we lost access to conventional financing because so many units were rented, and that depressed the values. So the membership voted in a bylaw change that banned any future owner from renting out. And as units turned over, it ended up that I was the longest owning unit owner there and I was the last one left out of 116 that was allowed to rent and they had a parade when I sold my unit (laughs) and there were no more rentals at all. No, I'm exaggerating. But they were happy to see me go and have it 100% owner-occupied because it just is so much better from the perspective of the lenders. Tom in Massachusetts says, Hi, Clark. I'm a new listener and love the show. I just finished my taxes for 2020, and because of a couple of life changes, marriage and a baby, I'm receiving a decent-sized credit. I've heard you mention in the past that your refund should be as close to zero as possible. With the updated W-4 form from the IRS in 2020, it seems to be a lot more complicated than the old form. I tried using the estimate calculator on their website, but with my job having a lot of overtime some weeks and none other weeks, the calculations will never be consistent. What do you think I should do? Because I'm tired of giving the government an interest-free loan. So you are so right. The new W-4 form that the government, I guess, was trying to make the withholdings more accurate for people had made them go haywire because nobody can understand the new W-4. I looked at it recently, and it was just crazy. You shake your head at it, because I really do think they had good intentions and good faith, wanted to make it easier, but no, there's no way to figure it out. So I don't have good guidance for you on that, but you should claim as many exemptions as you can and uh, just know that it's going to take a few years before you get the math right under the new system so that you are in fact making as little of an interest-free loan to the federal government as you possibly can. You know the bigger reason that you don't want to do this Tom is not because of the interest-free loan it's because of tax fraud where if somebody files a return as if they're you, you typically have to go through a very slow process to get your real return filed and put through the system. And any refund you're owed typically takes a year more or less to get at that point. 
Next, Americans have been fluffing their nests and buying furniture over the past year of coronavirus like crazy. But would you be better off renting it? This past fall, I had a question from somebody wanting to know if I thought it was a good idea since furniture depreciates so heavily in value I think it was a better idea to rent furniture instead of buying it. And I was like kind of dumbfounded. And it turns out that this is a thing now, particularly with people in their 20s and 30s who rent apartments, they're more mobile, that renting furniture has become a thing. And there are now several companies that they have the apps and, and the mobile websites and you go on them and you pick out the furniture and everything's quoted in cost per month. And so you rent a sofa, you rent a chair, you rent a dining room set, whatever. And they say, you know, this is 14 a month, this is nine a month, this is 22 a month and on like that. And then when your lease is up, you got nothing you got to move other than your clothes it may be some family heirlooms, and the rental company comes and gets the furniture. So this is very, very convenient and intensely expensive because furniture does depreciate like crazy. I'm trying to think what loses value quicker than furniture. The only thing I can think of is electronics. But the second you buy a piece of furniture, its value drops like a rock. And a weird thing I saw in Business Week is how much furniture people just abandon each year. That people don't even try to sell it. They just leave it at the dumpster. Can you believe it? So... I was talking to my brother who had looked online about when they moved to a new place, getting furniture on the local Facebook marketplace page. And then he started dealing with the hassle about how you get furniture to your place. And then how do you lug it upstairs and all that? And, uh, and it is a hard thing. According to Bloomberg, 80% of furniture, the equivalent of 80% of furniture manufactured in a year, ends up in landfills in the same year. Not that year's furniture, but that's how disposable we treat furniture now. The reality is the smart money, maybe not for upholstered furniture, but everything else, get it used. I mean, it's freaky at the end of a month when people move out of an apartment complex, how much furniture you see sitting outside the dumpster. This is a new form of dumpster diving. You don't have to dive in the dumpster. You just grab the wood furniture next to the dumpster and you end up paying nothing for it. Krista? Okay, Clark, Ray says, my boyfriend and I are looking to legally get married. We're trying to figure out how to not take on each other's debt while doing so. I don't want him to become responsible for my student loans, and he doesn't want me to become responsible for his credit card debt. How do we do so? Because this is pretty much the main thing holding us up. 
Marriage is important to us because we want to become a unit when we have kids. I, we just don't want to get penalized for it. So the scoop on this, and congratulations to you, is that debts of yours when you get married remain yours. Debts of your fiancé remain your fiancés when you get married. And the only thing you've got to be aware of is there are a small number of states that are what are known as community property. Once you are married, debts that you develop in marriage are the debts one is the debt of both, that you are both responsible for the financial life of the other from the date of marriage forward. But in terms of debts that predate, the obligations remain to that individual that were there before you got married. Now, if you want to keep it really clean, you use new credit when you get married and don't use your old credit and wean away from it, pay it off. And then it's clear that you're not commingling those debts. But if you continue to use those after your date of marriage in a community property state only, and you can look online as to whether the state you live in is community property, you would then know that you have to take that precaution. If you're not in a community property state, then the debt obligations of one remain the obligations only of that one. And Krista, check just for your own knowledge, your state is not community property, so you don't have to worry about that part anyway. Anonymous says, my husband invested a portion of his 401k in GameStop and AMC right before they crashed. What should I recommend he do with these stocks? These are highly speculative uh, situations that uh, were very unusual phenomena. And there are people who rode these up and made big money. There are others who bought when there was a lot of media coverage of both of these companies. And you've ridden them hard and down way fast, way far. And so if your uh, husband does not believe these are going to recover at this point, then I guess you go ahead and just treat it as a loss and a lesson, and you bail out and go into more diversified funds available in the retirement account. Uh, You know, I'm not a big fan of buying individual stocks, especially not buying what are known as story or momentum stocks. And both of these were both of those things at the same time that were only, um, that only ran up in value because of what happened on Reddit. And there was not the intrinsic value that the stock market reflected for a period of days or hours. And so they crashed back to earth. And it's just an expensive lesson learned for a lot of people. Michelle in Alaska says, in your online banking reviews, there is nothing about USAA checking. How would this compare to your top choices? Great question. And the only reason that we did not cover USAA Bank is it's a captive bank. It's really there for uh, my fellow USAA members. My kids both use USAA Bank. One of my brothers uses USAA Bank as his only bank. And what you get with USAA Bank is you avoid a lot of gotcha fees. You have what's considered to be very good customer service, very 
good quality and low interest loans. And what you don't get is any meaningful interest on savings accounts or checking accounts with USAA Bank. Cheryl in Connecticut says, well, I'm currently using a dependent care FSA to pay for daycare for my younger child. Can I also open and withdraw from a 529 plan to pay for K-8 private school for my older child? Will there be a penalty or limitation because I'm using both options at the same time? Not at all. You are allowed to take up to $10,000 in a school year from a 529 account to pay for K-12 through private education. And the question is, is that the best strategy? By the very way I said that, you know, there are reasons I would say that's not necessarily the best strategy because the great advantage of a 529 account is tax-free growth. And when you spend money from the 529 for K-12, through you lose the many, many, many years of tax-free growth that that money can have being used for college rather than being used for private school. If you put just tons of money in a 529, you're on a good trend line for college, and you want to use some of that money up to the annual max for K-12, through then go right ahead. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate your trust in me being part of our podcast and being part of Team Clark. And I want you to know something that a lot of people aren't aware of. For more than 28 years, we provided free one-on-one advice as well. And you can talk with the Team Clark Consumer Action Center on Mondays through Thursdays. You can see the hours, specifics, and the phone number to call if you go to clark.com slash CAC. And if you're not a subscriber to our podcast, please consider doing so. And let us know how you feel we're doing by reviewing what you're hearing from me each and every podcast.